A poem is a small machine made of words. William Carlos Williams. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, exploring the poetry scene of Central Canada and beyond with Amanda Earl and A.M. Kozak. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. My name is A.M. Kozak and I'm here with Justin LaBelle. And we are currently uh, sitting in the woods by a fire uh, somewhere in Quebec and we're going to talk about photographing space. How does that sound to you, Justin? Sounds like it'll be a treat. So I remember uh, a few years ago, you, um, when we were out in BC, and you hadn't photographed, or didn't, at least didn't say that you liked photographing nature very much, but I feel like after a couple months passed, you took, I don't know, took really good nature shots, and I thought, I think you thought of it differently. Was there something about being in a place where nature was more obvious that made you, I don't know, enjoy it more? Were you forced to pay attention to it more? Did you have a certain thought process about how you thought differently about taking photos uh, of nature? Or of well, I can tell you the first time I started thinking about the fact that I was taking more pictures of the city than I was of nature. Uh, I was in Juneau with a friend that I was working with on the ship. His name is Metsir. And uh, we were walking by, and I was telling him I was a little disappointed with the mountains. So where we were, there was, you could find the explos explosive rock. The rock that's been exploded, I guess, is the better way to put it. And uh, there wasn't a lot of variety. There's just cracks and edges and, I guess, more jagged edges from time to time. And I pointed to the rocks and I kind of told him that um, nature just seemed a little boring when you compared it to what people were painting or drawing or sculpting. And then he said it's the fact that you either had to believe that someone made this rock in nature or if it wasn't, that it was just by chance. And if it was just by chance, think about all the work involved in that chance. And I didn't really think much about it, but then when... Uh, we were living in BC, and you kind of see that chance or that idea of creation either controlled by some sort of being or just random. Uh, you start second-guessing whether or not the city's better, the reflective surfaces of a glass or a cool pond of water. I mean, I think as you get older, the pond of water seems a little bit more interesting. Hmm. Uh, what about now? You, you live in a small city in Sweden. I should have opened with a bio or something. Uh, you're a photographer living in Sweden, uh, teaching visual art. You take pictures mostly of, I'm going to call it more of almost a suburban area. Is that right? Yeah. What do you think about, do you approach those sort of photos differently of suburbia, downtown, nature, are you looking for different things, or do you have a different perspective, or how does that sort of, how does all that interact in your in your mind? In terms of what's interacting in my mind, I think that we're in, 
either a new crossroads or an ongoing crossroads when it comes to art. I think anybody who starts off in school, in middle school, in high school, hearing about art, you hear about the grandiose. You hear about um, the big sculptural work of Michelangelo or the paintings of Da Vinci or the technical prowess of Raphael. And then you go into ideas and you start hearing about pop artists or you start hearing about Mark Rothko and color theory and you kind of get lost in the process and what's what's popular now especially if you're like a I guess the easiest way to put it is if, if your cultural heritage has been in the spotlight for long periods of time um, it becomes a little bit more about a personal journey because I think that's what everybody can relate to instead of going for the big or the sublime, we've been focusing for the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years on the everyday, on the things around us. And as someone who didn't grow up in the suburbs, but I always watch movies that took place in the suburbs, now that I live close to the suburbs, uh, I guess I can, f I try to find a little bit of beauty in that. And also the fact that a lot of the suburbs in Uppsala anyway, specifically the ones I'm living in or around the Rosendale area, are disappearing. So there used to be these old summer homes, essentially a step up from cottages, and they had massive plots of land, big backyards, and now they're being sold and subdivided or then divided a second time or a third time, and they're being turned into condos or large apartment buildings. Golf courses have been torn down. Luckily, there's some nature reserves that are going to be there for good. But the environment is changing. And some people think it's for the better, and some people think it's for the worse. And I think it's just as a foreigner, uh, or an immigrant, or whatever you want to call me, um, I think it's easier maybe for me to see differences, or just point out differences, because I don't really know, I, I have nothing to compare it to. I don't know what it was like beforehand, but I do, I am, as I'm working, reacting to the environment as it changes. Yeah. And you, but before you moved to Sweden, you you were interested in the suburbs. You had a project called was it then suburbia or something like that. Mm -hmm. What at that point interests you about suburbs? Uh, <laughs> uh, that was a, a, my my Tumblr name, still kind of exists, and I was interested in it. Uh, it was kind of a joke. So there's this guy that I used to really like, and he could finish any question with but does it float so someone could say this is an amazing thing I don't know it's solar powered it goes fast and then he's just finished by going but does it float and I was thinking more in terms of myself the people around me uh, okay well we'll try all these things and then if nothing works then I guess we'll finish in suburbia then suburbia uh, and try to find something there and I guess I guess I didn't realize I've got to that point now <laughs> I've got to do a little bit of digging. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something about the placement of or arrangement of space in suburbia, in the suburbs, that you find interesting? Because when I think of suburbs, and I think when most people think of suburbs, we think of very carefully crafted, um, you know, things that look similar, rectangular things, boxes, um, 
is there something about the look of the suburbs that interests you from a, a photo point of view? Or is it more the concept of, of the suburbs of, you know, people go to the suburbs to have a family and that sort of, that sort of idea behind suburbs? Well, I think the concept of suburbs has always interested photographers, at least, at least since the 50s. Um, really? Yeah, Rob, Robert Adams used to go around taking pictures of homes and developments, uh, very straightforward, straight photographs. Straight photographs meaning um, very little manipulation. So mm -hmm. you'd set up a tripod, kind of try to get as much information out of the photos as possible, print them and show them. Um, I think for me, what interests me about suburbs is that they were originally designed to be an escape from the city. Mm -hmm. And as cities expand and the need and want for housing grows, these suburbs that were developed at least early on with some concept of green space um, go in two directions. You have the houses that are nearly abandoned and are almost overrun with green space, with trees, with uncut grass. And then you have the houses that are being sold and every single inch of green space is being paved over, constructed over, ripped out. Uh, I remember suburbs or houses in suburbia as having big gardens and kids playing outside on their bikes, stop signs, but very little traffic. And I think that if you go to a capital city or a large city, you'd be hard pressed to find those things still existing, at least not the way most of us choose to think about them or remember them being as kids. And do you think you take do you take pictures of those sorts of spaces now more out of um, interest or convenience because you live near them? I think it's a bit of both. I think a lot of photographers are interested in what's convenient. Uh, there's a painter called Robert Rauschenberg who used to make these amazing paintings using t-shirts and sweaters that he'd find on the street, new, bits of newspaper, abandoned shoes, stuffed birds. Uh, and then there's this like ongoing joke where he moved to an island and uh, was surrounded by shells. And when he couldn't find any trash anymore, the only thing he was still getting was boxes shipped to his apartment. So he did a bunch of paintings of boxes or used the boxes and then tried to make ceramics that looked like the boxes. He kind of ran out of ideas. And I, I personally don't think the work got that good, but you, you <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely weak. There was um, a retrospective in London a few years ago and the room steadily got worse, in my opinion. Anyways, to, to answer your question, I think that um, if you're working full time, which if we're honest, most young artists or aspiring artists or people trying to make art, however you want to define it, uh, kind of need to at this point, to be able to find the money or the time to go at something that is not close by, that is not convenient, uh, is all the more taxing, and I think that we're all kind of we're all kind of interested in our backyard. I think David Lynch made it a lot easier as well for us. Like you watch Blue Velvet, or you watch any of those kind of the neighbor next door doing something wrong. You can stick around the suburbs long enough, and you'll find something to, to take a picture of or paint or draw so inspiration. When, so when you're in places that aren't as convenient for you to access. Do you find that you approach them differently knowing that you're not going to have access to these spaces very often or for very long 
do you do you approach them differently? Do you think more? Um, are you more cognizant of a plan or anything like that, or what you're trying to get out of it, or are you less comfortable in that environment because you're not as used to being in those spaces to to shoot? How do you approach the different environments that you're in, whether it's nature or or I guess the downtown of a metropolis as well? I think I tend to notice people more than spaces when I'm traveling, when I'm in new situations. Um, as a teacher, I kind of feel uncomfortable taking pictures of strangers uh, in the city that I work in because I don't want it to be connected to my students or their parents or anything like that. Um, so I think my, my gut instinct when I get to a new city, because I, I really like street photography and I really like people and chance in photographs is to kind of focus on that. And then it usually takes me three or four days uh, to start really noticing the city or patterns in it. Um, patterns in like architecturally or? Yeah, architectural patterns, the way people uh, inhabit or explore the space. Hmm. Some cities encourage walking. Yeah. Some cities encourage, uh, I guess you could say like green the continued use of green spaces. Like uh, if you think about, I was just in Philadelphia a little while ago. There aren't, there aren't that many parks. There's a lot of, there's a lot of gray cement, which means that during the summer, it's really hot. There's a lot of people, there aren't that many benches. So, you know, it was, it was kind of strange seeing people just trying to cool down on the steps of someone's house or the steps in front of a building. Mm. Whereas in a lot of European cities will be big, parks around the city or inside of the city where it kind of people tend to flock there they'll try to find some shade um i think what i have noticed is uh, since talking to you for good or bad uh conv you convinced me to use google maps a little bit more offline and i have a much bigger tendency to look at my phone more often while i'm traveling than i used to I used to get a, a paper map and I would circle spaces and then just try to hope for the best while I was walking in a direction. And I felt a little bit more, uh, more strongly that I reacted to mm. the things around me a little bit more, uh, like it subconsciously. It was more, it was more like a gut reaction rather than some sort of conscious attempt to capture something. Do you think it was because it was more serendipitous rather than planned? Yes, but it's also I was looking at buildings a little bit closer. Interesting. You're more in the space. You're more present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, I was hoping, we'll say, if I was walking towards, I don't know, a sculpture or a house from a certain era, I would try to. I would be paying attention to the houses as I progress, thinking, is there a change in the architecture? Does it seem like I'm going towards the old town? Are things shifting? Am I going towards the uh, the business district? And yeah. so, can I? When can I start turning around? What about, so that's when you're in, in cities and you're noticing people, you're taking street photography because you enjoy doing that and you can't, you don't have a lot of chances to do that when you're not traveling. What about when you're um, more in spaces like this where there is no one else around? It's, it's, it's completely you know, empty of humans aside from, from us. Do you look for different things or notice different things? What is your, how is your experience or approach uh, shift in these in these situations. I think it's extremely tempting to want to just take a beautiful photo. Mm. Um, the thing is, everybody takes beautiful photos now, and uh, as someone who aspires to 
print and show their work in a public space. Um, people aren't as interested in beautiful photos, or at least I'm not that interested in seeing a beautiful photo printed in a public space. I can find that on Instagram or Tumblr mm. or whatever. Um, phones make it so that when it comes to your exposure, when it comes to your focus, when it comes to your color, it's very easy to get something that was up until recently just considered objectively well-crafted. Mm. Only most of us are aware that there's very little craft being made in digital images. That's obviously a generalized state statement. That's, mm. not, that's not always true. There are still a lot of people who do a really good job editing their digital photos, but considering the amount of images being made through the digital medium, through social media, something like we used to, in a generation, our grandparents used to see, we'll say, a million images, and now people see more than that in, in a few weeks. Um, so to try to come here and be surrounded by things that I think a lot of people could say are objectively beautiful, like the sunset we saw earlier tonight, um, how do you make that interesting? Mm. How do you make someone care? How is it a different sunset? How can I take a picture of a sunset that people haven't seen before? Specifically when uh, there are thousands or millions of sunsets being hashtagged mm -hmm. on Instagram. So it's a challenge in that you're, you're sort of working within a almost cliched um, medium or environment when you're taking pictures of, of nature that is, is beautiful. And I could relate that to something like, say, you're writing a sonnet. You know, you're, it's been done so many times. It's been done well. It's been done by very famous people. Yeah. Yes, to all and, those things. But at the same time, there's that challenge of, can I write an interesting, unique sonnet? Can I take an interesting, unique nature photo? Um, See, I, I, think, I think it's not just, can I take one... Can I take multiple and try to sequence them into something that has some significance? Uh, I don't know if you want your, your listeners to know this, but your birthday's coming up and you're going to be turning older than you might want to admit. And uh, I just came out of a breakup and, you know, things are changing. And so we don't get to see each other all that often anymore. And to spend a few days camping alone with your thoughts maybe there'll be some sort of realization, right? There's a shifting or changing the tides. Uh, it's time for contemplation, for relaxation. Uh, maybe I'll be able to find meaning out of the photos and it's not about what other people see, hmm. but maybe what I can make sense of. Do you think then because you have more space or time for contemplation or you're more in tune with it, do you think that um, encourages you to try things you wouldn't normally try? Or do you think you would normally do in terms of photo taking or conceptualizing photos? Well, some of that starts off with, uh, I, I made a friend in Serbia and he was looking at my photos and he said that uh, I'd have a really hard time slowing down. My, my photos worked because they were quick, they captured instances. And that's actually, I started working on the, the Suburbia project in, in Uppsala in Sweden. Um, so the, the camera that I brought here kind of forces me to slow down as well. It's a hmm. large medium format film camera and uh, that pretty much just means it's a little bit slower. I need to focus things a little bit differently. I need to think about the image a little bit more and because 
can only I can only take 12 photos on a roll. I'm a little bit more conscious of the fact that I could run out. Yep. So, I mean, I don't know if that really answers your question. Uh, I guess it's context as to answering your question. Uh, <laughs> a question which has no answer, actually. Um, you're also talking about how there are so many photos now and there's such good... There's so many nice photos that people enjoy, with it, especially because of Instagram. Mm-hmm. Does that change how you approach the craft of, of photography, of the technical aspects of it, of the editing of it? How have you, um, how do you react to that when there's so many people that can take such beautiful photos, and you, as a someone who's been a photographer for a long time and are have trained and practiced and worked at your craft? It's Ten years, man. <laughs> Scary. Um, I guess it's trying to change my own definition of what what's a good photo. Hmm. I think that we are bombarded by the same image. I think I think I mean I like to travel and I find it inspiring. And so to answer that, I think a lot of Instagram photos are travel photos. Mm-hmm. And with Google Maps and GPS and uh, must wiz- visit websites, you know, top five places to see in Ottawa or whatever, um, it's incredibly easy to get into the trap of revisiting what's been seen and, and being influenced by how it's been seen by others and then, and then mm-hmm. taking that same image. Uh, there's a photographer or image maker right now, I can't remember their name. Uh, what they've been doing is taking thousands of images or hundreds of images from Instagram that were all hashtag with the same Mm -hmm. word and then making composite images out of them. Mm -hmm. So you have large sunsets made up of a thousand different sunsets all found from Instagram or, you know, the girl, the girl whose hand is extending towards her boyfriend who's holding the camera. She's walking towards some sort of special monument or the person with doing a handstand on top of a mountain, something like that. So I think it's either finding the minute, finding the, the overlooked space, the small thing. It's uh, taking pictures of people taking pictures is something that's popular. I guess maybe the next step will be taking pictures of people taking pictures of people, people taking, taking pictures. pictures. I think you wrote a poem about that uh, yeah. at some point as well. And uh, that interaction. But again, what's happening is there seems to be a distancing from the thing to how the thing is recorded. Uh, it's the same shift that, like I was saying before, with um, the sublime or the beautiful or the monumental changing from this is something we all should aspire to, to, well, this is how my life is being. And now it's almost going to people taking pictures of uh, how others want to project how their life is being seen. Hmm. Uh, so it's, I don't know if I would say it's meta. I think that that's a very charged word that's overused. But there's also, I think, a conscious a very conscious thought process involved with a lot of people these days about how images lie, how images are manipulated. We want to believe that analog photography is somehow more truthful, but it's it's not. It's still an image. Do you think that because, so say you're you know bombarded with pictures of sunsets and you want to take a picture of something else or a different sunset or something unique, do you think that the end result is becoming more introspective and more... Um, self-absorbed in a way to record the self because you're not really sure in the external world 
what to capture or what to explore. It's also the, the idea, I think, okay, I think there's also a, uh, a very real conscious decision with a lot of people to try to figure out whether or not we have permission or the right to explore the other, um, mm. specifically as like a white male, um, you know, we have... There's a very long history of white guys going into some other culture and putting it on display, right? Making mm -hmm. it seem exotic, mm -hmm. make it, it seem alien and, and benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people who have any type of academic background or have done any independent research into theories in regards to the other in art um, are acutely aware that if everybody has a camera, um, who are they to enter into an alien space, an unknown space, a foreign space, and document the people that live there, that inhabit in that space, and tell them what it's like to be them? Hmm. I mean, people have their own, every, every phone has a camera, and every person that's part of a group is all the more better suited to, to document, arguably, arguably, subjectively document um, that space than the person who's come in. Now, that's not always the case, uh, like I said, coming into um, Uppsala and noticing the changes in suburbia, uh, it's something I didn't notice in my hometown. Mm -hmm. Now that I've left there for a few years, coming back, I notice it. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes seeing a space for the first time can be inspiring mm -hmm. because you're immediately aware of what's around you. But I think there's also when it comes to other people or trying to photograph things, uh, shifting into selfie mode uh, to answer more of your question in terms of if people are a little bit too self-obsessed, um, you can't win. You want to document an event or an experience because we know that that memory is fragile. So you ruin the moment, you, you pose so that you can remember a specific moment and that then becomes the memory. Because by revisiting that image, you're constantly reinforcing that that was the moment. And a lot of the times we know that we've created that moment. Mm -hmm. There was a moment, we've lost the moment, and then try to recapture it through that pose. And so there's people that get pictures, that get their friends to take pictures of them from behind. Mm -hmm. So they're not, they're not looking away from the sunset, they're looking at the sunset and it's just their back. Or there's people that do selfies and then uh, try to crop out the thousands of other tourists that are at the waterfall or at the pyramid or whatever. And then again, it becomes a lie. You know in your, in your experience that you weren't the only one there, but you document it so that it seems like you're an exception. So it seems like you're the only one there that's truly experienced this place. But everybody who's done that understands that this is part of a lie and, and we're feeding into that lie. We're, all of us that, that participate on social media kind of are mutually aware that what we're seeing isn't necessarily true, but we let ourselves get carried away with, with the belief that, but maybe this is the truth this time. Reminds me a little bit of a conversation we had in Vancouver a number of years ago um, when I argued that going to the same mm -hmm. uh, space multiple times mm -hmm. allowed me to recognize or notice things that I did not recognize the first time mm -hmm. because I was more familiar or comfortable in the space and I could sort of observe more yeah yeah um the flip side is there's only one time where you can see a space or a place for the first time and there's always going to be that one first impression that you're going to have um that is 
I don't know, not influenced by anything else you've done in that space already. Um, and I guess that's not really a question. It's more of just a, just a statement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with relationships, with human interactions. That's usually it's the first time you, I mean, it's like the first time you see fireworks. They don't have to be the best fireworks, but you remember those probably the yeah. most. They're the most exciting because you have nothing to compare it to at that point in time. But it doesn't mean it's the truest fireworks that you yeah, see the best fireworks. Yeah, the perfected yet. form. <laughs> yeah. Well, Justin, we might have a part two of this uh, tomorrow <laughs> another day, but uh, what do you say we, we call it a, call it an evening? Sounds good. All right. Um, not sure if this is a break or if it's the end of the episode, but regardless, thank you for listening. Um, I'm A.M. Kozak. I'm talking to Justin LaBelle. We'll put a link on to, to some of his his stuff, maybe his Instagram even, I don't know. Um, thanks for listening. All the judgment. <laughs> Small Machine Talks with Amanda Earl and A.M. Kozak. <laughs>